there's so much more I could say about all of this. I mean, my heart is broken. I cried so much over the last week thinking about this case and trying not to obsess about it. But how do we deal with this fear of it happening to us? The first thing I wanted to say about this case is we have to be careful as a society not to call this postpartum depression because it is postpartum psychosis. The second thing is, here we go with the IUGR again. This is like the next big baby now. This is the next thing. Yeah, the the next big baby is the little baby. Exactly. (laughs) Clearly, my energy level changed talking about this, but that's because... That's because this aspirin advice is now coming from the same community, the same medical community that was significantly harming women and babies and families for the past few years. And we have the statistics to show for it. Birth outcomes were much worse. So they lost some credibility. What are the alternatives to the vitamin K shot? How did this get in the quickies? (laughs) I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, Certified Nurse Midwife and International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. It's that favorite time of the month. Yes, it is. Q&A night. To be followed by dinner. Yes, that makes it extra special. So this is how we spend cocktail hour. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Where's my cocktail? Oh, and guys, first, before we get into this, do go to our Patreon page. It's designed to be really, really high value to you. Um, Over there, we have two live streaming events with us every single month. Even if you join just for one month, you have full and immediate on-demand access to every single live streaming event we've ever done right there in your feed. So go check it out. And if you want to stick around, then you'll participate in uh, and attend our two new events every month. So we're having a lot of fun and it really is designed for everyone to be able to join and, and give you a lot of value in return. So please come take advantage of it and check it out. It's at patreon.com slash down to birth show. Oh, and worth noting, that's where to get the extended version of this Q&A episode and every single other extended Q&A episode we've ever done, all included as soon as you join, right there in your feed, available for you to just click play and listen. And for the live streams, click click play and watch. Guys, Patreon is where some really good stuff is happening. Some of the stuff that we, you know, we're not afraid to talk about much at all here on the podcast, but we go even... We go even off the record more over on Patreon. That's for sure. Let's jump in. All right. What have we got? Hey, Cynthia and Trisha. Thank you so much for taking our questions and really for all that you do. I'm so appreciative of you both and your work. Um, So my question, I am getting married this year and we'll be trying for a baby shortly after. Within this time frame, we'll also be moving to a new state where we will not really know much about our new location or our surroundings. And we do plan to have a home birth. So my question is, what should I be looking for when searching for a midwife or a midwife practice? What kind of questions should I be asking? What kind of credentials should I look for in these providers? Are there any red flags or green flags to look out for? Um, Any and all insight is always appreciated. And again, thank you both so, so much for what you do. Thanks. 
Uh, right. Um, first thing is length of appointment time. I would say you want to really be looking for a midwife. That's the second, second thing. Do you remember what the first thing is? We did a study on this. Remember hundreds of women contacted us with their responses. Right. The first thing is how late do they take you for your appointment time? <laughs> right. How long did you wait in the waiting room? <laughs> really? So, that is very telling. Yeah. And I think that with home birth midwives, it was like one minute wait time. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> uncommon because the appointments are scheduled for such a length of time that you're given sufficient time to talk about anything and everything that comes up. There's plenty of time to do any type of exam that might come up. If there's an issue that comes up that needs more attention, you know, there's time built in. So we're not talking about 15 minute visits. We're talking about 60 minute visits. At least. Um, yeah, at least some are an hour and a half. Um, so that would be my first thing. So the next thing, of course, first of all, before we go too deep into this, we should just remind everybody that we have three fabulous episodes on provider red flags, and these apply to any type of birth provider. So hospital midwife, OB, home birth midwife. So definitely have a listen to that because you're going to get a lot more information there. And we have a great episode on the green flags that we did with Barbara Harper, which talks about what we really are looking for in a provider. Um, you so know the red we, flag episodes were 118, 124, and 129. Write Very that good. down. They're broken down. They're broken out by trimesters. I think, yeah. Do you have another, were you going to finish something? Well, what we always say, of course, is to really go within and look at how you feel when you are sitting in the parking lot, getting ready for the appointment. When you leave the appointment, what's the feeling that's happening within you? Are you feeling nervous, anxious? Are you feeling at peace when you leave? Are you feeling distressed when you leave? Are you feeling like you, you know, just didn't quite get what you were going for? All of those little subtle feelings within your body are very important to take into consideration um, to determine if you're really with the right person. Yeah, I think that's it as well. Your your intuition tells you a lot. Um, you can ask them about their experience, any areas you think you might be high risk, get all the logistical stuff out of the way. But really, it's just going to come down to how you're feeling around them. And the best gauge is how you are before and after that appointment. But I like her tone. I like her optimism that's coming through in her voice. That's where you want to be when you're planning to conceive. You want to be all super excited and getting the information that makes you feel excited and, you know, looking forward to conceiving that baby. I think you have to look at some of the stats too. You definitely want to know how long this home birth midwife has been in practice. What are her criteria for, you know, um, transfer of care to an OB? What's her hospital transfer rate? What's her postpartum follow-up like? You know, all those little logistical pieces of things are important too. All right. Hi, my name is Catherine. Um, I gave birth um, 16 months ago, and I had a textbook pregnancy. And um, at 38 weeks, I started to develop symptoms of preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. So I was at the hospital, and they put me on the magnesium and the Pitocin, and I hemorrhaged and had the membrane sweep. Then because of the hemorrhaging, I had to have a transfusion. So a lot happened. Baby was healthy. Glory to God, I was healthy. I, you know, just had a lot to recover from. I was told by the doctor that I probably couldn't ever give birth anywhere else or I shouldn't ever give birth anywhere else but a hospital. Thinking about having baby number two pretty soon. And I just 
the advice that I would like to hear is with the preeclampsia and the helps, what are y'all's opinions on trying to have a birthing center birth after that? I, I just wasn't very active with my first pregnancy. I don't feel like I drank enough water or ate super well, um, gained 40 pounds with the birth. So I feel like there's a lot I could do differently, but I was wondering, like, what are my risks? Should I just do the hospital route? I really don't want to because, honestly, we were getting bills over a year later. And so with the birthing center, it's, you know, five grand and we're done. And so um, I really just would like to hear what y'all's opinions are coming back from my experience. Thank you. Well, my first thought is it's one thing if you want to have a birthing center or home birth. When she made the comment about money, that gave me a little bit of pause because I don't think the right reason to birth out of hospital is cost, though we certainly could be improving the maternity system in our country based on that alone. But for the personal decision in your own life, make sure it's the place where you feel safest and where you're most excited to give birth. Then if that is also the case, that the reference you made to cost aside, yeah, I mean, it sounds like she's very clear on the things she didn't do the first time around, whether it was nutritionally, exercise, she seems optimistic about what she can do there. Um, I, I would say, I don't think any reasonable birthing center or home birth midwife provider would stop her from beginning her pregnancy with that intention. As long as she doesn't see symptoms of it in the third trimester, would she be pretty much good to keep with that plan, Tricia? Absolutely. I mean, she's good to keep with that plan until she's not good anymore. So, and hopefully she will be good all the way through. The recurrence rate of preeclampsia is somewhere around like 10% or so in subsequent pregnancies. Um, so there isn't a little bit of an increased risk for her, but the most important thing she can do is take her inter-pregnancy interval here before she gets pregnant again, very seriously to get in the most healthy, nutritious, fit, active, you know, she doesn't need to become a marathon runner or anything like that, but really take care of your physical body um, so that when you do become pregnant again, because preeclampsia can begin early on in the placental implantation process. And we don't really understand that whole element of it. So we have to do everything we can to start off our pregnancy as healthy as possible. And um, we know that there are certain nutrient deficiencies that are a contributing factor to the development of preeclampsia, as well as lack of protein, so diet and movement, um, glucose regulation, all these things are important. And definitely, if you haven't uh, heard our episode, on preeclampsia with Lily Nichols. Right. That episode came out at the beginning of the month on March 8th. So episode 203. Ready? Ready. Next. Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. First of all, thank you so much for your podcast. I've learned so much um, from the both of you. Um, I'm 37 weeks pregnant with my first baby and I'm prone to getting cold sores um, on my lips. So I asked my midwife, if there's anything I should do um, to protect, you know, my baby after birth, ahead of birth, what's, you know, what's the deal? And she said, yes, what we'll have you do is start taking Valtrex um, daily starting now uh, up until your birth. And so I was, I've taken Valtrex for, to clear up cold sores and it works really well, but I'm hesitant to take something while pregnant every day, especially because it has some scary side effects. So I was just curious. What are some alternatives? I was also just curious about after a baby is born, when I do get a cold sore, 
I understand I need to be careful to not pass it on to my baby. So what are the risks there? Yeah, we just love some clarity on this topic and some guidance of how I can try to avoid outbreaks, what to do if I get them um, after baby is born, and if there's a good alternative to taking a medication like Valtrex um, every day, or maybe Valtrex is totally safe. <laughs> um, but if you could if you could share on that, I would appreciate it so much. Thank you. So cold sores are the results of the herpes simplex virus most most of the time. The, the HSV-1. HSV-1 and HSV-2 are both significant in pregnancy and both can cause illness rarely, but can cause significant illness in babies. So it is recommended that you suppress the virus through um, antiviral medication, as she suggested. You can absolutely also take lysine, which is really effective and totally safe to take in pregnancy. So that would be where I would go um, because who wants to get a cold sore in pregnancy anyway? So, um, you know, get on that. It does have to be very, very high doses of lysine and taken three times a day. I believe Mark Hyman's podcast, The Doctor's Pharmacy, F-A-R-M. Funny that I'm spelling it out. His podcast is at, like one of the biggest in the entire world. So I probably don't need to spell it out, but he, Wait, had he spells it with an F. Yeah. The Doctor's Pharmacy. Yeah. Um, I guess I never noticed that. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 Um, and he does have an episode where they spell out exactly how much to take. And I don't remember, but it was a very high dose and it was three times a day. You have to basically flood your body with lysine because it does kill the virus, but it keeps it in check in your, um, it keeps it suppressed in your body. You can't really get rid of these viruses very easily, but you can definitely keep them in check. Other things like ginger, turmeric, garlic, and onion are also really helpful for that. And then there are some foods that are potentially theoretically viral inducing, which are eggs, mostly eggs and dairy. I had a friend at when I worked at MasterCard who used to get them all the time. She was kind of an expert in cold stores in cold stores because she would get these really severe outbursts. And she used to religiously cut out, um, caffeine, coffee, and chocolate. Mm, Yeah. Oh yeah. Those are triggers. Yeah, absolutely. Red wine, I think too. Oh yeah. I think so too. Um, and then as far as, you know, her baby, definitely if you have an active cold sore, you're going to want to try to not spread that to your infant. Um, the reality is at some point in life, it's probably going to be passed on. I mean, what if like 80% of people carry these viruses around in the population? It's very high. Um, so there's only so much we can do, but we certainly know that in prenatal development and early infancy, this is when these viruses are most harmful. All right, guys, next question. Hi, Cindy and Trisha. Um, I had a question for you ladies for the Q and a, um, so I recently had an appointment with my hospital based midwife and we were going over my birth plan. And one of the things that I wrote on my birth plan was that I didn't want the baby rubbed or cleaned off after birth, um, that we want to leave the vernix intact and all of that. So she responded to that one by saying that the baby needed to be dried off. And her explanation was that the baby was going from an intrauterine temperature of like 98 degrees to an extrauterine temperature. And if the baby came out with water, like the amniotic fluid or being birthed in the water, 
that they would be cold and not able to regulate their temperature. So it was a little weird to me because I know that one, the vernix is a way for the baby to regulate their temperature. It gives them an extra layer. And I know that my chest is thermoregulating for them. So my first question for you is, what are your thoughts on the baby needing to be dried off? And my second question is, is it unreasonable for the baby to just come straight to my chest and then a blanket just be placed over the two of us? Um, anyway, just wanted to know your thoughts. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, <laughs> as usual, mother knows best. This provider clearly has never seen a water birth or any other physiologic birth um, anywhere outside of the hospital, because if she or he had, they would see that every time a baby is born out of the water and held by the mother without a big old towel rubbed all over them, they do just fine regulating their temperature. Well, they're designed to, they're, they are in 99 degree temperature and they do throughout the history of the world. They come into all sorts of different temperatures. Um, maybe we didn't have incubators and those aren't as efficient as, as skin on skin human contact. Uh, so it's, it's just so disappointing that they're, they're talking as though they're the expert giving this advice. I mean, of course, the best thing is just pick up your baby and the mom is absolutely correct. Put the blanket around the baby, put the, your hand around the baby's head for warmth around the head, or your partner can do that. It's very simple. We don't need to complicate it. They know how to regulate. So to the provider's defense, when you are wet, you evaporate, your your heat loss is much more rapid, right? We all know that when you come out of the water, you lose body heat faster. So getting the baby dry is a goal. You do want to do that, but it does not mean that you have to vigorously rub down the baby and get every spot of water off them before you give them to the mother. You let the baby be born, you put the baby on the mother's chest and you simply just cover them and they dry and they regulate their temperature by being on the mother. If they were away from the mother, yes, you would want to probably dry them off faster because they don't have any other heat source. So if they're on the mom, it's not a problem and it never needs to be done aggressively, vigorously. Um, just cover them. It's one of the first things you're taught as a midwife or an OB to help a baby who's having a difficult time to transition is to stimulate the skin. So kind of like that's where it comes from. That's just, um, isn't right. that if different? They, if they need it. Like if they're a little limp, isn't that the idea? That's different yeah. from just cool, from just warming a baby. Yeah. But it's just kind of gotten wrapped up into this is what we do when the baby's born. We dry them. Vigor we, this is what you're taught. You dry them, you rub them, you pat them, put a hat on them. Yeah. But that doesn't have to happen at all. It does not have to we happen. You do not have to do that. No, the mom that's is like, not a physiologic transition. Mm -hmm. This is why Barbara Harper is so busy traveling the world, educating providers because they're that's still right. doing this stuff. That's right. Go, Barbara. Yeah, keep it up, Barbara. Hi, ladies. My name is Kim. I'm calling from Massachusetts. Um, I am a new mom. I have an eight-week-old at home. Um, so in light of recent events, I actually live about an hour from where the Clancy's lived. And um, now that it has gained national attention, um, I would like to see if you guys could speak a little bit on it and her condition. It's been on my mind constantly. Um, luckily, during my postpartum period, 
um, I have been feeling good and I am predisposed to anxiety um, and have been proactive in my care and am being treated for that. However, you know, like Lindsay, this went on for, um, you know, a good year or so. So what would you say to new moms who, um, you know, are terrified of, you know, this happening to them or, you know, or have, are, are experiencing, you know, similar symptoms with whether it's PPD or PPP and, you know, fear the risk of being reported, you know, or not getting the treatment that they need. You know, like mental health is a huge crisis in our country and there's definitely no right answer on how to solve this, but what do you do when the system just continues to fail, you know, at supporting moms or just supporting mental health health illness in general? So there's so much more I could say about all of this. I mean, my heart is broken. I cried so much over the last week thinking about this case and trying not to obsess about it, but how do we deal with this fear of it happening to us? If, if if the time does come, and what are some things that we can look for? Thank you so much. You want to kick this one off? Yeah. So we don't want to get into the details on this case. Probably most people listening know about it already, and it's just too devastating to talk about. And uh, if if anyone wants to avoid it, then I don't want to be the one to get into the details about it, but it rocked the women in my postpartum support group. It's been, I can't imagine the, the tears that have been shed around the world over this case. And it, I, what I'm taking this question to be is just that fear, like, oh my God, but for the grace of God, right? Like that could be me. So first of all, the most important thing I want to say about this case is what she had from everything we, that I've read so far and everything we have found, what she had is not postpartum anxiety or depression per se. It's postpartum psychosis that affects one woman per one to 2000 women. Um, it's, it's terrifying. Um, we did one episode with one woman who experienced that at one point. One out of 1000 or 2000 women sounds like a lot of women and it is a lot of women, but this was like a severe postpartum psychosis, right? Like not yeah, she heard she heard voices. Uh, and this, well, it, it involves hallucinations. So what psychosis is, most people think it's just simply having thoughts of harming yourself or your baby, but that isn't it. Um, having thoughts around escaping or disappearing, that is under postpartum depression, but psychosis is along the lines of hallucinations, hearing voices, seeing things that aren't there, perceiving things that are safe uh, as being dangerous. Um it's it's very, very extreme and very severe. So it does happen. And we're not to say, oh, it's so rare. Don't worry. That's not going to be you. It can happen. But the first thing I wanted to say about this case is we have to be careful as a society not to call this postpartum depression because it is postpartum psychosis. The second thing is, from everything I've read, of course, the whole investigation isn't complete. But from what I've read, if it's accurate, she was medicated. And we don't know how those medications affected her brain or changed her. That is a, a, a huge piece of this story as well that we're all yet to understand. But just more practically and personally for any of us, I just want to give the few key takeaways that there isn't, there's never, in my opinion, going to be enough research in this field. Um, but 
the research we do have shows very clearly that what women need is other women. We need postpartum support groups. That's the most impactful thing. In many cases, a woman needs a postpartum support group and a clinician as well, but she needs to have community. Uh, well, I just want to say the red flags that I've seen is that uh, providers are not educated and informed in this area, and certainly partners and husbands are not, and loving family members are not. And with one particular woman who's back in my group, um, anticipating her second baby, we were re reflecting on her first time uh, postpartum. It was a, a, an absolutely terrible situation for her. She developed um, an incapacitating fear of, of sharp objects. And there was a point where she finally, after all her guilt and shame, she shared with her midwife and her husband what was going on. She wept as she shared it. And most disappointingly, her midwife just said to her, but you're not going to do anything, right? And it, it's just, I've, I just find that unbelievable because it's like the bar is so low that we're saying to women, you're just, you're not going to kill yourself though, right? Okay, go ahead and keep suffering and crying 24 hours a day and being terrified of your thoughts. And we also need to mention on that point that there are some very well-known cases where women have committed suicide postpartum and famously said to their husbands right before they did it, like, like one famous case in New York city, a woman, she was an attorney. She said to her husband, he said before bed, you're not going to do anything stupid though. Right. And she said, no, I'm not going to do anything stupid. And while he slept, she, she killed herself, um, jumped out of a window, in fact, with her baby and remarkably the baby survived in New York city. So we can't just ask that of women and think that that brings any security. So what do we need? We need that woman to have 24 hour support. That's the, that is the bottom line. This, this tragic story that happened in Massachusetts, uh, the woman arranged 20 minutes alone in her home and that was it. So you have to remind yourself and your partner there is nothing in your household more important than you. And there's nothing more important in for you of you than your emotional and physical wellness. Your emotional health is the most important thing in that house. So you need 24-7 support if you have any question as to how you're doing emotionally. Uh, because look, this woman was being monitored. She was in the hospital prior to this event. She was on medications. So what do we need? We need someone there all the time. Everything stops. It doesn't matter if family has to take a medical leave of absence to be with you. There's just no compromising. You have to have support. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. 
Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. And just one last thought on that is you know, additionally, we need more postpartum follow-up with our care providers that one six-week, 10-minute checkup is not going to pick up on this. We need two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, and these things need to be discussed. Hi, Trisha and Cynthia. My name's Katie, and I'm 13 weeks pregnant. I have COVID. I just messaged the midwives at my birth center to let them know and in the response I got, they mentioned that some OB guidelines recommend a baby aspirin for 30 days after testing positive. They go on to say that aspirin has more benefits than risks and can help with blood flow through the uh, through the placenta. Uh, I've listened to most of your episodes, so I can guess what you're going to say about the aspirin. I'll probably skip that. But my question is, have you heard anything about COVID disrupting the blood flow uh, to the placenta is there any way that I would know that that's happening? Um, and should I get an ultrasound? Just curious about what your thoughts are on that. Thank you for everything you ladies do. Bye. Well, one thing we can certainly say about COVID is that most of the things that were believed to be true have been proved wrong. Uh, so I think we can assume the same here. Surprise, surprise. Right? I mean, has anything yeah. come out to be has no. anything come out to be what was said? It's constantly changing. And that's why we were so careful all these years of saying anything about COVID. Um, everything that was initially said has been changed or contradicted now. Every time I look up information about 
COVID and pregnancy, it, it's it's very vague. And the last thing I read where I was trying to get information about this was a study done with just a couple of dozen women again. And somehow it's always missing the mark. It didn't really mention the impact on the placenta. It didn't really mention uh, aspirin in the placenta. But I, I would like to know what is this knee-jerk reaction to telling women to taking um, to take aspirin every day. And all that they really say about it is there are no big or long-term risks associated with it, but I'm not really hearing the benefit of it. Right. So the, you know, the, it's a, it's all pretty much a theory, but there was actually one study, um, that I came across and let me see if I can remember it now. Um, one study in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that was uh, done in looks like November of 2021, which was looking at COVID-19 during pregnancy and aspirin use. And guess what the results were? No significant difference in COVID impact in the women and a three times higher rate of NICU admission in babies. With the aspirin? Yeah. Wow. Now, what they said, though, it was a retrospective study, so it's low quality data here. So and what they are presuming is that there were more NICU admissions because the women who were receiving aspirin were more likely higher risk pregnancies. So that might make sense, but it certainly didn't show any benefit. So and again, you know, not the best data, but I think everything that you said is true and everything that we have learned about COVID thus far has been essentially wrong. So my takeaway with COVID right now. I have such a lack of trust in the medical community. This is the community that was kicking doulas and even partners out of the birthing room. This is the community that was having women take COVID tests on the way into the hospital. This is the community that was having, in many cases, multiple cases we've heard, women who tested positive for COVID, even if they didn't have symptoms, being told their baby should be kept in a separate room for the first 10 days of life. I mean, that uh, that I'm just, that's staggering. Women giving birth with masks on, I'm getting all worked up. But now when they say anything about what we know is best for you when it comes to COVID, I'm just thinking those are the same quote experts who gave advice we know to be dangerous. We knew from day one to be dangerous. So it, it's, you know. Can you imagine my head? I'm, my head is still with the mother who was separated from her baby for 10 days. It's unthinkable. It's no. unthinkable. It's, it's, torture. It's, it's torture. cruel and unusual punishment. And to the baby. Completely. It's mm -hmm. trauma. Or to the couple where one of them tested positive, but had no symptoms. So what are you shedding? There's no fever. And they separated them or giving birth with a mask on. How is that? How could anyone go through that? And they did. It's, it's total abuse. So, and women didn't have to abide. They could have ripped the mask right off. They didn't have to wear it. But, but that's, you know, to, yeah, because we were led to be afraid. We were led to be so afraid of this thing. Yeah. And people are, you know, women have been afraid of CPS coming in as the, mm -hmm. anyway, uh, clearly my energy level changed talking about this, <laughs> but that's because that's because this aspirin advice is now coming from the same community, the same medical community that was significantly harming women and babies and families for the past few years. And we have the statistics to show for it. Birth outcomes were much worse. So there you go. They lost some credibility. Well, yes. Not some. A lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Well, now we are 
going into our extended portion of the episode. So if you're on Patreon with us, we're going into the next segment. Uh, otherwise, we're heading on to quickies for our regular subscribers. Well, it is quickie time and then it's dinner time. All right. All right. Quickies. Here we go. Kick it off to begin. Can surrogate mothers also co-sleep or is it actually unsafe if your baby's not your biological child? What an interesting question. Well, we're no experts in surrogacy. That is for damn sure. But I would think it's just as safe as anything else, honestly, because um, there we know what makes co-sleeping safe and we know what introduces risk. And none of those things that we know on either list are related to biology. I can't think of any reason why co-sleeping with your non-biological child would be any different. Um, I think she's, you know, oh, wait, this is a quickie. <laughs> I mean, you can still finish yeah. your thought. Go okay. Ahead. I think she's thinking, you know, about the attunement, the mom and baby are so attuned from being yes. in utero together. And now that, you know, you're not with a non-biological child, but you're still a mother and you still have mother instincts. And I think that sleeping is perfectly safe with a non-biological child. Okay. Next. Is it wrong to not feel comfortable with midwives that are too young? So I was 26 when I first became a midwife. Um, and I remember thinking that like, I'm so much younger than the people's whose birth I'm attending. And how do they feel about that? Um, I think it's not wrong to have that feeling, of course, because with age and practice comes wisdom. But it doesn't mean that a young midwife is going to be unsafe. In fact, you know, one of the benefits of young midwives is they're fresh out of school and everything's really fresh on their mind. If we are um, focused on some of those safety parameters that we might have been taught in school and the techniques and all that, and they're going to be really focused on that. Um, again, this is a quickie. God, I'm messing okay. up the quickie. We are allowed. Tonight. We are allowed to answer in. We're supposed a, to be quick. Short period. Now we once asked on Instagram and everyone was pretty forgiving about quickies. I think they said like we had a multiple choice and they said at least a minute. Don't worry. Okay. Be quick when you can. I mean, I, it does make me think of when Ina Mae Gaskin wrote in one of her books, it was the only field of work where a new inexperienced person could enter and have the same good outcomes that they're going to have 10 years later because birth is so inherently safe. Mm. That was what Ina wow. Gaskins. said. So that's a pretty yeah. powerful statement. That's a pretty powerful statement. So it's not wrong to have those feelings. Should you still proceed if you feel like it's good fit? Absolutely. Next. Will I ever get my period back while breastfeeding? We want another baby. Yes. Yes, you will. <laughs> you look very proud of yourself for a quick answer. When, <laughs> when I can't say exactly, but if you reduce feedings a little bit or space them out, it'll probably come back sooner. But 100% yes. Is induction necessary at 39 weeks if you have gestational diabetes? No. Next. Why is it not? Because fear of a, because fear of a big baby is more dangerous than the big baby itself. And that is shown by research in a great meta-analysis study, actually, we'll be sharing on uh, Patreon. Okay. Caveat, if your gestational diabetes is not well managed and there is significant concern, you are potentially facing a slightly larger risk of the shoulder dystocia because of the fat distribution. Um, 
So that doesn't mean induction is necessary, but it wouldn't feel right to not mention that there is some increased risk in gestational diabetes that's not well managed. Okay. Favorite item for postpartum moms other than silverettes or postpartum soothe? Because <laughs> you guys know how much we love both of those. <laughs> a sling. hundred uh, percent. I was going to say the same and thing. Down. Hands down. Nothing else. A sling, a, ba- a sling, baby carrier slash one of the two, both, whatever. Yeah. Baby carrier yep. must have. Must have. Favorite gift you received as a mother for you or your child as a keepsake? And this is going to take some thought. Is that the last one? No. Oh, okay. Um, I think my favorite thing I received outside of things that were passed down to me from family was my, when I had my son, my friend Suzanne had a girl and I sent her a beautiful package of like five extraordinary dresses. I just thought they were like the most beautiful birth to one year dresses I had ever seen. And I just had so much fun shopping for her and wrapping them and sending them to her. And four years later, when I had Vanessa, I got a big package in the mail and she sent them all back to me in beautiful condition. And I was so excited to get that package. It was so sweet of her to do that. Um, That's what, that's what comes to mind for me. Not very helpful if you're looking for ideas out there, but that's a happy memory for me. So thank you for bringing it back to mind. Well, I was struggling to think of mine, but then when you said the dresses, it suddenly dawned upon me and this is not actually something that was given to me, but it was something that I gave to myself. Um, I traveled to Paris in college or high school, somewhere in between, somewhere in between, I think it was. And you know me, I have wanted to have babies since I was like 10. So I was shopping in Paris and I went into the most beautiful baby store at the time in Paris called Bonpont. And I bought a little white dress that came in this beautiful, like a little chiffon white infant dress that came in this beautiful little suitcase. And I brought it home and I saved it for another, however many years it was, at least more than five until I had Lola. And then that was the first thing she wore. Wow. And of course, I still have it. That's so Trisha. That is so Trisha. Yeah. All right. Next. How many times per day is it normal for a baby in the third trimester to hiccup? Many. I can't put a number on it, but many times a day they can get the hiccups. Absolutely normal. And it's going to happen after they're born too. They're going to hiccup many times throughout the day and it's all completely normal. Is it safe to use retinol during breastfeeding or retin-A? For skin? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, You'll be told that it's not. This is a topical that we're talking about, Retin-A for uh, skin health, dermatology. Yes, you can use it while you're breastfeeding because the absorption through your skin is so minimal. It's not going to impact your breast milk. Is the 20-week anatomy scan necessary in planning a home birth? It's never necessary. No. It's not. Um, if there's one ultrasound you do choose to have in pregnancy, that would be the one. And the main concern, if you don't have it, is just if there is some gross anomaly, gross meaning not gross, large, like, yeah, large no, anomaly yeah, no. within, within the baby that, you know, could uh, make home birth unsafe for the baby. Is erythromycin eye ointment needed if you're GBS positive? Nah. No, because it doesn't address GBS bacteria. That's right. It's not what it's for. 
What are the alternatives to the vitamin K shot? How did this get in the quickies? <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> I guess because the quick answer is not to get it. That's the alternative. And head on over to our Patreon to learn about vitamin K. And if you what should do we get have it over there. What do we have? Newborn, oh, the newborn intervention, whole, the whole, whole thing on we that. Did, we, we did a whole live stream event on it, guys. Definitely check that out. It is so good. So much information, a whole class on it from erythromycin through the PKU and deep dive on all the research on vitamin K. Really every expecting couple would probably get a lot of good information there. So um, yeah, all our live streams are available on demand. They don't expire. And they are well worth it. Well worth it. All right. One or two more here. How many pairs of shoes do you have? Oh no, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to say that number. Cynthia, come on, tell us. No, I'm so uncomfortable saying that number. Hundreds? Oh God, no, no, a hundred close. No, it's not that I buy shoes a lot. It's just, I don't throw them out enough, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't get around to wearing them. They're all in good condition. And I had too many. Do you have a favorite? What pair? about you? You probably had, whatever I have, you probably have more. When no, no, I'm really? a big shoe collector. 20. That's reasonable. Yeah. I, my shoe, my shoe collection is very reasonable. I get rid of them frequently. I mean, I was including summer sandals, hiking boots, everything in there. I'm going to count mine and I'll find out for sure. It'll be more than you think. Okay. And then, okay. Then I want to know how many hats you have because <laughs> you're going to have dozens of hats. I have a lot of hats. And every, and from cowboy to sombrero. Yeah, I do have a lot yeah. of hats and why, and I want more. Of course you do. <laughs> Do you have a favorite pair of shoes? Yeah. Oh, yes. I have a favorite pair of shoes I bought in, in, in yes, that I bought in Florence in my 20s. They're gorgeous. And I've had the soles and heels redone to keep them in tip top condition. And I don't believe I'll ever throw them out. I absolutely love them. I have never seen anything like them. Now I have to post them on Instagram. Yes, you do. Because <laughs> everyone's wondering. Yes, you do. What about you? You know what? I have a pair of Prada boots that I bought in grad school, black. Why? This is why you only have 20 pairs of shoes because you're buying things like Prada. I will keep those boots for life. I haven't worn them in a long time. And I don't know, it was a huge splurge for me. I think I, I, they were definitely on sale. I didn't, you know, I didn't, they weren't full price, but they're so classic and perfect yet. I haven't worn them in a long time. So I'll put them on and we'll put them on Instagram. All right. That'll be fun. Maybe I'll wear them tonight. Your boots and my and my you, Italian leather shoes. You wear your favorite shoes tonight. I'll wear mine. Mine are open toe. <laughs> oh, okay. Can I get away with that? Sure. Why not? I don't think I can. All right. I need to go brush my hair and get in the car. Okay. I'll see you in half an hour. Yes. Pick up the phone, guys. Pick up the phone. Call 802-GET-DOWN, 802-438-3696, and you can ask us anything. See ya. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself.
You know, it's not a thing to show your toes anymore. It's like a big no-no. What? Yes. My kids will never wear toeless shoes. Why? Well, toeless, is that the right word? Toes cannot be exposed. Why? I don't know. Well, we need to know why. I'm not just going to do whatever Gen Z says, Trisha. (laughs) It's just a trend. It'll pass. Toes aren't going anywhere.